0: Reading from the New Testament, Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, and 16 through 27. I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Meet Prisha and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. to the only wise god be glory forevermore through jesus christ amen this is the word of the lord Thank
1: you, god. would you please join me as we pray father as we hear your word being read it reminds us that, that we're not so different as those first believers were we have the same longings and same desires, even here in 2017 in Washington, D.C. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to that and to Christ. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. Well, tonight, we will conclude our study on the book of Romans. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Um, One that we studied way back in September with the goal of uh, knowing our faith and sharing our faith and going deep, doing a deep dive into one of the deepest books in the scripture about the Christian gospel. Um, A book that really um, shows us the details and the depth of God's salvation through the Son of God, Jesus. Jesus. And this is what we've been doing throughout, just a recap, if it's your first week. Basically, for most of the time, in chapters 1 through 11, we were looking at pretty intense and complex theology that basically establishes God's grace as God's grace. And then Paul turned to applying that gospel to our lives, things like how we love one another, the uh, how we handle differences with one another, the weak and the strong. And then last week, we talked about how it applied to mission, and this week, to conclude, how it applies to what I'm calling team ministry. Team ministry. Now it's typical in Paul's letters that he will greet people in the close. This was typical of ancient letters. But nowhere else do we have this many greetings. This is the most extensive list we have of people that he's greeting. And, and we just actually read a portion of it. I just figured if, if I can barely pronounce the names, why, uh, you know, why torture our reader to have to do them all? But I encourage you to look at it, open it up even now. Um, but in it, we get a glimpse of the early church and how they thought about team ministry. We love... To see one of our athletic stars shine, you know, we love to see that person hit the three-pointer right at the buzzard. We love to see, um, you know, uh, the double play or the triple play. This week, I was looking at some triple plays throughout history. You know, just amazing baseball. Um, I don't, I, you know, I, there's sports that I don't know about, so I, I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence. Uh, triple play or what they call in hockey the tic-tac-toe, you know, where it gets passed three times before the thing is shot. Um, It really is, you know, it's one thing to see someone, uh, I guess if I had a choice between watching someone hit a home run or hit the three pointer or hit the slap shot, I'd rather see the latter. There's just something beautiful about teamwork whether it's the San Antonio Spurs and how many times they pass, or whether it's watching a hockey team just work together, or whether it's watching a baseball team, you know, work it around the diamond in such a beautiful way. It really looks like poetry. It looks like uh, ballet at times. I think it's more beautiful than just the individual. And the reason is because it shows us something. It shows us honor. It shows us respect. It shows us love. It shows us what it means to work together in unity, something that we were made for and something that we long for. Here you have one of the great stars of Christendom, the Apostle Paul. When it came to theology, he could hit a home run. And when it came to missionary service, he could really hit the three-pointer. But I want you to notice where his focus is. He's well aware that he's on a team And he's just so appreciative that he's on a team. And I think that's the insight that we get in this passage. From the beginning at Grace Downtown, we have desired to be an every-member ministry. And you see that, whether it's our setup team, or whether it's uh, our community group ministry and people leading, or the staff, or the way the elders function, or the diaconate together. And we don't do it just because it's fun or it's pragmatic. It actually makes things probably more difficult at times because you've got to take time you've got to work through stuff. But we do it because we believe it's thoroughly biblical. It's what God has given us as the vision of the church. So for this last look at the book of Romans, I'd like us to look at what marks a team ministry and what holds it together. Okay, let's look at those two things together. What marks a team ministry first? Paul's greeting includes 26 individuals, two married couples and three house churches. It's a lot of people, right? A lot of people. And because we're given so many names, we're given some insight into the way the ministry was functioning. Um, a couple of things I think we find about these marks. First of all, it was a diverse team. It was a diverse body. Um, names often indicate diversity. For instance, ethnic diversity. Meg noticed when we were first married, I think we were going through our respective high school yearbooks. And she said, you know, it's interesting with my class, you have a lot of Smiths and Jones and Henrys. And she said, for yours, I can barely pronounce the names. You know, it's like Bartolotta, Kaczynski, Gutenberg. You know, it's all these ethnicities jumping out from you, the part of Pittsburgh that I grew up in. Uh, Same with these names. Most of the names here are Gentile names, uh, non-Jewish names. Why is that significant? Well, I mentioned this last week. The majority culture of the early church was Jewish. And so the fact that you see so many minority culture believers and the fact that they are active and working lets you understand they didn't just have a ticket to enter, they had a seat at the table. They had a way that they could actually serve and have power and to be able to work together. This is part of leadership. I I think this is really a part of the church that uh, I long to see more and more, not only in our church, but in this denomination. Uh, One of the signs that we'll see that uh, we're growing in godly diversity is when we see less white leaders in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, We see more people up front at the General Assembly, people that represent the diversity of the body and the ministry. And I think that's the the truth in any uh, church, that God would actually take whatever demographic's present and everybody would rise and everybody would have that place. But names as well in the ancient world told us something more, not just ethnicity and race, they could tell you something about socio-economic class, ancient names. In this list, we have some noble names, uh, Aristobulus, who scholars believe may have been the grandson of Herod the Great, or Narcissus, who uh, likely was serving the emperor Claudius. So there you have folks of pretty high stature, pretty high cultural power, uh, Phoebe's mention She's a wealthy benefactor. This is a woman of independent means, a woman that uh, has quite a bit of money. Uh, She's been serving people. But many of the names, most of the names, the majority of the names are actually slaves and freed slaves. Which gives us a glimpse that it wasn't just one socioeconomic class, but a diverse economic class. Those that were currently slaves in the Roman world, but those that had earned enough money to be released. I was thinking about um, Absalom Jones. He was the first African-American Episcopal minister to be ordained, and then he went on to be a Methodist lay minister and pastor um, a um, basically a diverse church, a uh, white and black church. But although he was a minister there, He and his fellow African-Americans were not allowed to sit on the bottom floor or pray and kneel at the bottom floor. In fact, one day in worship, they decide that they'll sit and actually pray, and they're obstructed. They're not allowed to. So they get up and they walk out. It's one thing to have admittance. It's another thing to have access, right? And in the early church, we see something very different, that people had access. We actually have a letter in the New Testament. uh, Philemon, which is written to someone that owned an indentured servant, and the indentured servant had ran away. And you get a glimpse of how Paul understood those dynamics. It worked different in the kingdom of God. And this ought to mark leadership in the church, where, you know, the folks that are in leadership just aren't, you know, ones that have reached some milestone in their career or have a lot of letters after their title because we understand wisdom and maturity to be wrought by the Holy Spirit. That's another mark of the early church. A third one was its gender diversity. We have two husband and wife teams mentioned. Uh, We have single women mentioned, Mary. Uh, Paul refers to the mother of Rufus. This likely was um, the wife of Simon who carried the cross. You remember when Jesus uh, couldn't carry his cross and Simon from Cyrene, an African man was called in. And Paul refers to her as his mother. She's been like a mother to me. It's Paul's cross-cultural mother, Rufus' mom. And then Phoebe, who I mentioned. The, the word we're given here about Phoebe is diaconos, which means uh, servant, or it's the word we get deacon from. And we're unsure in this setting whether or not she was a deacon of the church or whether she was just a servant of the church. It's hard to tell from just this context. Uh, It may have been, I guess, if I favored one because it says deaconess of the church, it sounds like an official position. I would guess she was a deaconess in the church. But Paul talks about her stature, the fact she's uh, a business person. This is probably how she became a patron. She supported many people, he says, not just himself. And on top of that, he entrusts her with his greatest work of theology to deliver. She's the one that delivers the book of Romans to Rome, what came to be the deepest theological book. Paul had such esteem for her, he said, when she shows up, give her anything she wants. Anything she wants. And greet her as worthy of the saints. Worthy of the great saints that go through the Scripture. And so in this window, we see a diverse church, one in terms of gender, one in terms of ethnicity, one in terms of socioeconomic class. This marks a team ministry. This is what we're desiring to be at our church, longing to become more and more. But it's also a selfless team, we have Greek Prissa and Aquila. Now, Prissa is short for Priscilla and Aquila. And those of you that read the New Testament, the book of Acts, you probably said, hey, wait, I've heard those names. It's because they're written about in the book of Acts. Um, They were actually expelled from Italy when Claudius had ejected all the Jews from Italy. So they had to leave, but they ended up traveling with Paul. They were fellow tent makers with Paul. But they began to do ministry together and spend a lot of time together. So when they go through Ephesus, Paul goes, would you guys stay here and do ministry? And they end up discipling along a guy named Apollos, who is one of the great teachers and apologists of the Christian church. This husband and wife team bring this guy along in his understanding of Christ. He says that in verse 4, who risked their necks for my life. It's not only the service they did, but Paul is saying there that they actually put their lives on the line for him in his ministry. They risked death for him. We don't know exactly what the circumstance was. They were willing to forfeit their lives for the gospel. And then we have Andronicus and Junia, another couple, and we're told that they were in prison for the gospel. This is a husband and wife team that were thrown in jail because of their ministry and commitment to the gospel. And Paul is thankful to them as well. It was a selfless church. It was a courageous church. We love stories like Band of Brothers or Hacksaw Ridge, right, where we see someone living selflessly to the point of death. You know that great scene in the first Captain America where they're all at the training, right? And he's this weakling and he can hardly make it through. And the way they test is they throw a, you know, a fake grenade, but no one knows it's fake and he jumps on it and no one else does. You know, those scenes inspire us. They ought to inspire us. The true uh, story of Desmond Dross, who was in the true, you know, what Hassall Ridge was written about when he summed up why he risked his life and saved all those people. He said it was a service of love. That's how he interpreted it. It was courage motivated not just for bravado, it was courage, courage motivated by his faith in service of love. I was reminded of it actually this week. Um, about six, six months ago, we had a new couple come to our church And uh, my first meeting with them was an unusual meeting because it was the meeting that they told me that he had gotten a diagnosis out of the blue of stage four cancer. Uh, They had come here to to start their empty nester, portion of their life, uh, excited about it, and boom, he's hit with this. And uh, the treatments appeared to be working, but last week the cancer came back uh, with a vengeance, attacking his brain and his spine, and yesterday he went to be home with the Lord. Meg and I uh, have been spending quite a bit of time with them this week, and uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was watching this man's wife, uh, probably going on 10 to 20 minutes of sleep a night, sitting on his bedside, and responding to any movement, a head turn, a groan, an eye opening, just moving, you know, fixing his sheet, putting a pillow under his head. They were a team together. And she was a glimpse of just selflessness. What would you give up for someone here? Because, you know, we are spiritually married to Christ. We are the bride. We serve the one who was so selfless he rendered his very life. That was the whole purpose he came. The whole reason he came was to die for us, to sacrifice his life, But we're not only the bride of Christ, because Christ's spirit is in all believers, we're also the groom in a sense. Now, he's the groom, but you get my point. We're the body of Christ. What would you give up for someone here? Now, would it be sleep? Would it be money? Would it be control over your schedule? Would it be free time? Would it be vulnerability and honesty? but this is what we're called to. And I know the answer to that question because for years I have watched you give up for one another. You know Stories of friends that wake up in the middle of the night because someone needs driven to the hospital. Community groups that see someone has a financial need and so you know, they give additional money to what they would even give to the church to help the person. Countless meals. This week, this woman and her family will be eating the meals of a community group. That's what it's like. That's the power of what we're called to be. But it's an affirm team as well. Uh, you know, a diverse team, a selfless team, and a firm team. I don't know if you have uh, the memory, and maybe for some of you guys that are younger, uh, you can remember it, uh, but that feeling when uh, this was my gym teacher. Do they even use that word anymore, gym teacher? Phys ed teacher? Dude, I don't know. You know, but this was... Uh, Basically, where they call and say, they pick a couple people and say, you pick teams. And so everybody's like this. And you're just hoping and praying you're not last, right? You're just hoping and praying that someone else next to you is last. You know, you don't want to be not picked, not affirmed on the team. Well, I got good news for you. In the gospel, every believer gets picked. And not out of pity. And not because God goes, "Ah, I guess I need. He does it because you have contribution to make. You're not only saved, you were empowered and equipped. This is the team ministry of the church and you see it in Paul's the way he prefaces his word. Again, I want to encourage you to read through this if you're not only looking through it, but you know, he often says my fellow workers. He calls two people his kinsmen. That's like my bro, my girlfriend right is that women is that is that what I don't know if that's what you're using these days Uh, bro seems to still have some you know still still seems to be useless I use it but I still say awesome every now and then and that's clearly 80s right Um, but anyway they're his bro his countryman three times he says my beloved man I mean that that would be something. Imagine if Mike wrote to one of you and said, "My beloved," you'd probably say, "Huh? I wonder what's going on here." You know. <laughs> but in the church, we ought to, because then he says, "Give each other a holy kiss," right? And we could talk long about this. But right, you know, the Christian faith is the place that sanctifies physical affection. In our culture, that so sexualizes physical affection, we can barely even talk about it, even to the point where we say, "Friends with benefits." You know, we, we, have, we, we struggle to say physical affection that is sanctified and holy. But this is what we're talking about here, an affirmed team. Andronicus and Junia are apostles, actually, small A apostles. Not big A, but small A. They're sent ones. So think about this for a second. Paul is endowed with one of the greatest offices in the church And yet, he has such high affection and high esteem for his team members. This is so rare in our day. Usually, the higher someone rises, the more they just see people as dispensable. Usually, the higher someone rises, other people's gifts and their talents begin to threaten them. But we all know, whether it's in business or in church life, the secure leader is able to allow people to rise and use their gifts, he needs their gifts. He needs their ability. Paul needs these people. You can read through the Gospels, and he's like, pray for me. And he's not saying it just because, you know, he wants people to feel good. He's like, you better pray for me. The other night I was speaking at a community group, and I shared a couple needs, and someone said, can we come and pray for you? Put a hand on you? I was like, yeah. And they did. And I'll tell you, I felt loved and empowered by it. Um... All of us need this, yet it's so rare. Jesus is our model. He says to his disciples, I'm not calling you servants, I'm calling you friends. And so this is a picture of the team ministry of the church. But let's close by just briefly looking what holds it together. One of the truest tests for a team is when it's losing and when it's facing challenges, right? Uh, This is where you see what a team is really made of. I was thinking about this past Super Bowl. And however you feel about the New England Patriots or Tom Brady, that was amazing, right? Third quarter is winding down, two minutes left. They're behind 25 points, 25 points. And then all of a sudden, the engine begins to crank. And you see this team working together. And I, you know, I began, I think I was sort of half watching it at some point. And then I just was like, I was watching it on my computer, and then I was watching it all the time on my computer, and then I think I was like, you know, get out of the living room. we got to watch this. You know, this is just like history being made before us. And when Brady, someone asked him about it, he said this, we all brought each other back. We all brought each other back, and so we never felt out of it. Maybe you feel out of it right now. You know, maybe right now in your Christian walk, in life in general, you feel like, I'm out of it, man. I'm 25 points behind. There ain't no way I'm going to win. There's no way I'm going to do this. And you know what you need? You need a team. You need some people around you to borrow from their hope and give you strength. But teams can be vulnerable. So there's two things that Paul tells us in protection. One is keeping your eye on the right threat keeping your eye on the right threat. Paul says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those court, those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught, avoid them. He's talking about people that come in, and this is a classic person that sort of, you know, they major on minors. They don't have good discernment on what's really important as you look at the Christian faith and what's not. They, there may be someone that is really, uh, it's kind of like uh, my way or the highway. They have this understanding of stuff. And really their problem is they might think they know doctrine, but they don't know doctrine. And so they will, they will prey upon people that are vulnerable. And Paul understands this is a big problem. The threat isn't from out there. It's not the Romans. He's saying the threat is actually within the community. And that's, I've seen it in the church more times than I care to recount what implodes the church. Maybe it becomes division about, you know, the way someone thinks a youth ministry ought to go. Or maybe it's the worship style. But before you know it, people are literally like almost laying hands on each other, not in the biblical way. You know, I remember a pastor who was mediating a church. Anyway, this was a a PCA church. See, there I am. I think somehow we're... Involunt- this is a PCA church, for heaven's sake, as if, as if we're, you know, not vulnerable to this stuff. You see my own pride. But he said, you know, it was amazing. I literally was holding people back in an aisle from going after each other. It happens. We're just as vulnerable. And it's why it's so important that the doctrine we hold on to is the supremacy of the gospel. This book of Romans, we're at majors on majors. You know, where we can come together and go, no, the gospel is going to be the thing that we're about here and that masters us. And that we're actually going to take notice when there's doctrine that isn't healthy or good. You know, we live in an age today where basically the impartible sin is telling someone that they're wrong. You know, to actually engage someone. So maybe our friends are starting to believe something. We're like, you know, I don't really think that's reflected in the gospel. But they keep saying they're close to God. I guess they're close to God. But early on, it's that place where we very humbly have to say, you know, you profess to be a Christian. I'd like to know how you think about this. And not just simply by saying, well, this is my interpretation. But how does this jive with the doctrine of the church? Paul is concerned about that. So that's one way the team can come apart. But another thing is trying to live by our own strength, trying to do it by our own strength. As you and I, whether it's our job or our ministry here, we're just really laboring not out of weakness but strength. It's a weird thing to labor out of weakness, right? It means this place where, in a sense, the hardest thing about it is I have to let go of control. I can name a couple things in my life and ministry. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know how it's going to end. And everything in me wants to grab it and change it and manipulate it and make it work. And the hardest thing is to pray and ask God by his strength To keep it together. The only only person that's going to keep this church together, and we're going on, you know, 14 years, the only person is going to be Jesus. It's not going to be Mike. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be the elders. It's not going to be the staff. It's going to be Christ. He's the head of the church. Paul says, to him who is able to strengthen, another place says, establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ, which means we need to be educated in the gospel, but we also have to be believing the gospel. Right before we came out here, we were praying, and uh, Mike prayed because we, by the way, we pray uh, for this service, before the service. And one of our prayer team members, you might, uh, right now, you know, Harry is leading, you might, and Harry will come up and tap you on the shoulder and say you want to come pray. Don't be freaked out. Uh, You know, we, we just grab people and we pray and we just pray for the service. And as we were praying for the service, Mike said, Lord, I pray that you would help us to really believe the gospel tonight. To believe it. John says we know and rely on the love of God. You may know the love of God. Are you relying on the love of God? Do you believe he loves you in a way where he will not let you go? He will not let you go. We need to be strengthened in grace. And as we do, I love this verse, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That's looking way back to the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve's sin, God doesn't just let the first man and woman die under their sin. He says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. One will come and he will crush the enemy. That is Christ the Messiah. Christ will crush the enemy. He's already defeated the enemy. So, there we have, you know, one pass through the book of Romans. I want to ask you this, though. I want to ask you this. We call this thing the power of the gospel. And as you think about starting way in September and going till today, I want to ask you, have you been changed? Doesn't have to be, you know, in some way, have you been changed? If you haven't, I want to ask you to go back and listen to all the sermons again. (laughs) No. I want you to think deeply because this is meant to change us, this gospel. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, um, for inspiring. Thank you for uh, converting Saul of Tarsus. Thank you for uh, changing an angry man, a persecutor, into a lover. Thank you, Lord, as well for uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit in Paul writing this book, how all those things he learned of Judaism, you turn the lights on and help them make sense. Thank you for Phoebe, who faithfully carried this letter to the Roman church so we could have it. And thank you for preserving your word throughout all generations. Lord, would you please change us by the power of this gospel? In Christ's name, amen.